0: Iran's had a long relationship with Hamas. Uh, Hamas wouldn't be Hamas without the support over many, many years. It's been Iran. a week
1: since the deadly attack on U.S. soldiers at the Tower 22 base in the northeast of Jordan. The drone strike immediately blamed on an Iran backed militia.
0: Three caskets holding Staff Sergeant William Rivers, who today received a posthumous promotion.
1: The first phase was largely conducted by long range B 1 bombers flown all the way from Texas, refueling mid air en route to the Middle East.
2: This airstrike has led to the explosion of equipment and rockets stored in these buildings. The shrapnel from the rockets flew inside the residential compound. It caused damage to the buildings, equipment, and the people's properties, and one citizen was martyred. This is multipolarity. Charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. If you thought Iraq was a calamity, a moral, military, and geopolitical disaster, wait until the West goes to war with Iran, because listener, you ain't seen nothing yet. Recorded amid a US bombing campaign against Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq, as well as Houthi positions in Yemen, in this special episode, Multipolarity examines the increasing likelihood of direct war between the United States of America and the Islamic Republic of Iran. We look at US warfighting doctrine, how it would try and whether it could invade Iran to effect regime change, the effects, aims and probable outcomes of a concerted bombing campaign, and the likely disastrous blowback from any such campaign, including military losses, cyber attacks, Sleeper cells, terror attacks within Western Europe and the continental United States. We also look at how the Western world has got itself boxed in to such a terrible strategic position in the Middle East and how it might seek to escape, why it probably can't, and the dismal consequences of that ineptitude. To discuss this matter tonight, we have Malcolm Cheyune, friend of the podcast, who is back with us for, I believe, the fourth time. Malcolm is an essayist with uh, Compact Magazine and other outlets, including the New Statesman. Uh, he also has an alter ego, Sorg, which is now found at the uh, handle uh, Sword Mercury on X Twitter, which combines um, quite erudite comments about military matters and geostrategy with some rather edgier posting. Uh, Malcolm welcome back. Thank you Uh, uh, it's good to be back. Well it's always a pleasure to have you here Malcolm you seem to be absolutely box office if our listener numbers are anything to go by. Um, I thought it would be useful to start with um, a look at standard US doctrine when it comes to invading countries. If we look at uh, Iraq and if we look at Afghanistan as well perhaps we can really glean a little bit more about what America's options are when it comes to dealing with Iran. There have certainly been uh, calls, even from some mainstream politicians like, uh, of course, Lindsey Graham, among others, to really hit Iran directly and hard. Uh, But what if the US ultimately wanted to go for forced regime change? What if they wanted to invade Iran? What would that look like? Well, I think the first part of the strike would involve uh, cyber attacks and standoff weapons and probably some of the uh, U.S. Air Force's stealth platforms like, in theory, F-22s and B-2 bombers, which would seek to attack and degrade and uh, preferably destroy um, command control communications such as, uh, you know, Army HQ, the seat of government, seat of the executive... Uh, military control nodes and bases, uh, telecom, com- telecoms, uh, infrastructure, TV, radio broadcast, that sort of thing, as well as focusing very much on the Iranian Air Force and air defenses. Now, once it had kind of degraded those with its standoff weapons, like Tomahawk cruise missiles launched from submarines and, and, uh, surface vessels, uh, as well as, uh, bombing raids from, uh, F-22s and B-2s and F-35s, it would then go on a concerted uh, suppression of enemy air defense operation, which would likely involve multiple sorties where basically it would seek to locate and then destroy uh, Iran's uh, air defenses, as well as mopping up whatever of the Iranian air force hadn't been destroyed on the ground in the initial round of strikes that would then seek to establish uh, air superiority, or preferably air supremacy, um, at which point it would, uh, the U.S. would go after coastal defences and border defences. It would go after critical infrastructure, such as electricity, water, and would start mopping up the—or uh, or, sorry, not mopping up, but softening up the Iranian ground forces— Finally, it would seek to concentrate airstrikes, uh, probably in conjunction with uh, US special forces and perhaps even some uh, elite units as well to secure uh ground invasion corridors and uh, marine landing zones for the ground forces. The ground forces would then enter Iran. They would uh have... Uh, you know a, a, an air force with uh, air superiority or probably air supremacy in theory behind them and those ground forces would seek to use speed and maneuver and the United States has superior intelligence reconnaissance and surveillance uh, technology and platforms to use maneuver uh, as a way to isolate individual Iranian forces and bring down concentrated fires upon them, thereby defeating them uh, and ultimately rolling them up and taking the country or at least taking the government. That's a theory, Malcolm. That's certainly roughly how the last Iraq invasion worked in 2003. That's the way a lot of people would imagine things going now. People who've been brought up on the uh, irresistibility of US
0: military power I mean, is that how it would go, Malcolm? I mean, what you're talking about here is essentially a fairly antiquated way of warfare. Antiquated in the sense that um, the doctrine, insofar as it is a doctrine, and it's kind of up in there whether it really is one. Like Blitzkrieg for Germany was kind of a, a, a... was made into a doctrine after the fact, in some sense, by Western observers, and wasn't really something in, in those terms that the German high command was using during the invasion of France, for example. But um, it's antiquated in the sense that this is like three decades old, at least. Uh, it's also obsolete in the sense that like none of these things that you bring up could conceivably work against Iran, um, because I recommend for any listener who doubts that to just go to Google and uh, just Google map of Iran. What you will see is a country which is five times the size of Germany, by the way, um, that is essentially shaped like a fortress. You have all of these massive mountain ranges that essentially form a natural barrier protecting Tehran from pretty much every direction except from the north, and to the north you have the Caucasus, and you have Russia. Um, So, there are a couple of issues here uh, that are essentially deal breakers for this plan, even in theory. The first deal breaker is, uh, planes have a certain range that they can travel, Uh, before they have to turn around or they have to be refueled in the air or they will crash into the ground due to fuel starvation. Tehran is located farther away um, compared to, like, if you launch a plane from the Gulf of the Persian Gulf from an aircraft carrier, like an F-18, it might be able to get to Tehran barely carrying bombs it's going to crash right after it drops those bombs it has like it doesn't have the range to get back and the way you solve that generally is by um aerial refueling but the problem with aerial refueling is the US only has a limited number of those platforms that's the minor problem the major problem is these things are essentially slower commercial airliners essentially like shooting down a um Uh, 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 an air tanker like one of those refueling aircraft it's the easiest thing in the world like they are really slow they're carrying a ton of fuel so if you scratch them they're gonna go up in a big fireball they have no like stealth they have no like countermeasures they're just big slow flying targets um which kind of hints at the big problem with the American way of warfare, which is, it basically presupposes that the enemy is incapable of fighting back. Um, because if you're going to do this massive shock and awe bombing campaign against a massive country like Iran, which has, um, you know, which has a lot of mountains, which makes it much harder to um, bomb hardened targets on the ground you're essentially counting on them not being able to shoot at you. And so... Um, the, 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 I, I remember reading like 15 years ago, like people in the US military basically saying that the old way of warfare probably wouldn't stand up to... Um, like, it wouldn't really be useful in 2008. That's what people were arguing but it's not 2008 anymore. It's 2024, and the U.S. is much weaker than it was 2008. Um, uh, Technology has advanced. And again, Iran is not some sort of a two-bit country. If you think about the um, amount of soldiers uh, in, in the active military... Last I checked, which was the day before yesterday, actually, Iran was number seven in the world in terms of the size of the active duty military. Um, the U.S. was number three. So it had essentially like Iran had something like 700,000 in the active military and the U.S. has 30, 1.3 million thereabouts. But then you realize that the American army is only four hundred thirty, four hundred forty, four hundred fifty thousand, 440, 450,000. And the Iranian army is pretty much the equivalent size. So there is a problem of doctrine, but there is also a problem of scale in that the U.S. doesn't really have... Like, even if this doctrine would work, it would probably only work against a country maybe you know half the size of iran maximum maybe a fourth the size really um with maybe 20 million people or so like it might work against north korea it might not work against north korea but like iran just has too much strategic depth depth for any sort of shock and awe campaign to work and that's we're still only talking in theory. We're not talking about like the actual capabilities that the U.S. can surge to the region, which are very limited, because the U.S. is not located in the Middle East. So, hang on a say, let's just uh, unravel
2: that a, a, a little bit. Why, why can't such a campaign, a kind of super-intensive bombing campaign, that uh, significantly degrades command and control uh, significantly degrades, if not destroys an, uh, an enemy air force and its air defense. You know, why can't that, uh, work when followed up with a, a, you know, incredibly quick and highly maneuverable invasion when it comes to a country the size
0: of Iran? Like, what is it about size that makes that difficult? It's the same problem that the Germans had in Operation Barbarossa, like, you know, an armor division consumes a, a crap ton of fuel. And that was a problem for the Germans, but the Germans didn't use Abrams, which are not really, like, what people fail to understand is that the Abrams is a fairly old tank. It was designed originally in the 70s, and it was essentially designed to be used in Europe on the defense with, like, very, you know, like, German infrastructure uh, against... Yes. Right, so, like, moving
2: back over its own infrastructure, essentially. So as it retreated, it would be coming
0: closer and closer with its own logistics chain, if you like. Yes. Like, it has it has a uh, turbine engine. Um, it doesn't have, like, a conventional uh, diesel or gasoline engine. Uh, what this means is it has an, a prodigious fuel consumption. So, if you try to do some sort of shock and offing, you know, blazing across the deserts of Iran, you are going to run into the problem that, first of all, these deserts aren't really deserts; they're mountains. Uh, and tanks and mountains go together. Well, they're they're two great tastes that don't taste great together. Let's just say that but also even if the tanks were able to go through the mountains like there's just too much too much strategic depth and so for all every mile that these tanks travel you really have to have this big log- logistic supply chain trailing behind them so that's the first bottleneck on the ground but on the air there's another bottleneck which is like it's pretty similar in terms of like the US has I don't know the exact figure. I think it's like 12,000, 13,000 airframes across every service. Uh, So that includes the Coast Guard. But this includes medevac helicopters. This includes transport helicopters, strategic airlift, and so on. So, you know, uh, 12,000 airframes, that sounds like a lot. And it is a lot. But the U.S. lost around 10,000 airframes during the Vietnam War. And I shall remind you, Vietnam as a country, even today, it's not nearly as big or as powerful as Iran. Uh, so, like, you're going to lose a lot of airframes in a serious war. Like, the U.S. has not fought a serious war against any sort of, like, regular opponent. Uh Including the North Vietnamese Army, without losing thousands of airframes, it's never happened.
2: Yeah, when I was uh, researching this a little bit, um, I looked into Iranian air defences, and one of the things I found interesting is that they actually have a separate branch of the military devoted to air defence. So in the same way that the US has the the army, the air force, the space force, the navy, and the marine corps, uh, the Iranians have uh, you know an air defence. Uh, force, essentially. And one of the things I was quite shocked about was the variety and uh, breadth of the air defense platforms that they used. I expected it to be a, um, you know, some kind of 1980s technology, Soviet S-300s, and maybe some, you know, lower altitude, shorter range kind of leftovers from the shah's days you know like uh, some old us or british platforms from the shah's days but in fact uh they you know they have not maybe the most modern air defense Uh, you know we're not talking about uh you know russian s400s or s500s or anything like that but they do have the most recent uh, S-300 model, they have their own upgraded S-300 model, plus, you know, 20 or 30 uh different uh, air defense platforms, right from manpads, which are man-portable air defense systems, manpads, uh, up to kind of, you know, short-range missiles for kind of low altitude, uh, right up to, as I say, um, their own upgraded version of the S-300 and the most modern Russian updated version of the S 300, which was delivered about 2013, I believe. So, in terms of air defense, it is quite formidable and varied. I, and, and I always remember that, although it is true that the American, the, the US Air Force, knocked out Iraqi air defenses and command and control systems with consummate ease in 2003, I also remember that in 1999, Uh, during the bombing campaign of Serbia as part of the Kosovo campaign, um, uh, NATO air forces did not completely ever at any stage suppress Serbian air defences. So, uh, and and, you know, my my view is, albeit inexpert, is that Iranian air defences are somewhat more formidable than Serbia's and they have more places to hide them and distribute them.
0: Well, yeah, I mean it's a mountainous country that's you know a hundred times bigger than Serbia or whatever, with like a dedicated anti aircraft arm of the armed services. Like it's it's a thousand orders of magnitude a bigger challenge. But there's also there's a sense in which two thousand three, like the Iraq invasion, it, it it has to be one of the most destructive wars. In, in the history of mankind in terms of what it did with the thinking inside the West. Because um, there's a really great book about this um, called The the U.S. Army in Iraq, 2003 to 2012, I think. It's in the public uh, domain, so you can just download it. There's an audiobook series on YouTube. I heartily recommend it. Uh, but one of the things... That made the Iraq War such a pernicious war to draw lessons from is that um, we in the West thought that this really illustrated the technological supremacy of the West, and and then you know we didn't have enough you know wherewithal or willpower or whatever to to do nation building, but actually, like Saddam Hussein reasoned like the lesson he drew from the the first gulf war operation desert storm sure was that like he couldn't compete with american technology but also that like it was kind of superfluous for him to try to prepare his military for any sort of um like actually fighting the americans not because it was hopeless because but because he figured that, like the Americans would just do what uh, Bush the Elder did, which is uh, at most, you know, bomb, send a couple of tomahawks, and then ask some Kurds or Marsh Arabs or whatever to topple, do a color revolution or whatever. So, in the intervening years, bet- between the first Gulf War and um, the Operation Iraqi Freedom in two thousand three, what Saddam Hussein did was essentially. Defund the part of the military designed to uh, you know protect from an outside invasion, and instead um, reorient the entire state apparatus to dealing with internal domestic dissent. So this is a guy that has actually sort of you know decommissioned his military in a very real sense, and yeah, the U.S. rolls in after really crippling sanctions. And sweeps that military, you know, like off the playing field in in a week or two, uh, much to the surprise of the Americans. Actually, they thought it would be tougher, but yeah, like they they weren't actually fighting a guy who was even contemplating the idea of fighting back. And if you fight someone who has like lived in a universe or like ha- had a mental co- like concept of warfare, where it's like I'm not going to be fighting the Americans because they're not going to be interested in an invasion. If you draw lessons about like Western military superiority from that and try to translate them to Iran, a country which has spent the last forty years preparing for a war with the U.S., you're not you're gonna be cruising for a bruising.
1: Can I ask something? So so I think I think one of the key things here is this reminds me very much of what happened with the Russian sanctions. Um <clears throat> uh, we were quite skeptical of the Russian sanctions and so on the whole time. But in uh in the interim I found out, I don't know this for sure, but I think uh I uh, it's it's a little out-of-date information from a book I read, and it it fits with, with what appears to have happened. Um it appears that the sanctions package is designed for Russia, were probably designed in the mid '90s or something like that, and they were designed for effectively Boris Yeltsin's Russia, half collapsed, hyperinflation, people trading vodka for you know coats or whatever. Um, and basically, they you know nobody updated the program. They pulled it off the shelf. Lo and behold, it didn't work. Russia now is uh, as of last week growing. The IMF is saying it, it grew faster. Uh, in 2023 than all the other uh, G7 economies, and in 2024 it will grow faster than all the G7 economies again. So this feels to me very similar. Um, but I guess what I, I want to get at is um, you're saying, of course, that the, that likely right now they're going to be analogizing to Iraq because uh, they're both in the desert or something. And very much so feels that way. Oh, and they both have I R A in the name. So um, very easy that they would do that. I can totally see um, DC brain going there. Um, But here's a question. Um, The way that maybe the Pentagon thinks about Iran right now, or at least the way that uh, half-sophisticated people who don't just top-thump all day think about Iran right now, is there an Iran that existed at some period in time, an Iran that was Okay, I I get what you're saying about the specifics of the second Iraq war. I didn't know that. That's interesting. But if you see what I'm saying, do we have an Iran, maybe in 1985 or something like that, that is the Iran of the imaginations of the people who think that they can just desert storm in and like win the game and everything like
0: that? Or did that Iran never exist to begin with? That's a really great question. I'm very glad you asked it. And the answer is yes, but also no. Like... There was a time where people really thought that really weak iran existed uh, which was why the war between iran and iraq happened um, because you know you had this like iran after the revolution went through a similar sort of um like it was essentially the soviet union kind of in miniature it was di- diplomatically isolated economically isolated and then you have Saddam Hussein, who looks at, Ru- uh, sorry, not Russia, Iran. And Iran is has always been the big kid on the block in that part of the world. Uh, but now it's very weakened due to um, falling out with the US, due to being hit with all of these crippling sanctions, and having essentially jailed, executed, or exiled much of its military. So, um, Saddam Hussein thinks that he can basically uh, do the uh, um, Nazi Germany thing of, you know, one kick to the door of this entire rotten building and it will all collapse. And so, he does this sort of, you know... Uh, Iraq at this time has a bunch of fairly relatively modern like Soviet equipment, it has a bunch of Soviet trainers for the tank forces and so on and uh, they invade and it takes a couple of months and they get completely bogged down because it turns out that even Iran in its most weakened state it's been in for a very long time is basically like invading the Soviet Union. Um, the Iranians Uh, are able to draw upon, like, this massive wave of nationalism, they can essentially go to the uh, prisons, where they've imprisoned all of the failed revolutionaries, like, all of the communist enemies and so on, and say, yeah, you know, I know you hate us, because, like, this is the uh, um, Islamic revolution speaking, and uh, we were slated to execute you, but here's the thing: Saddam Hussein has invaded, and we're not asking you to fight for Allah. We're asking you to fight for Iran. So here is your rifle. Uh, you're free to go. Uh, it's it's time to fight for the motherland, and people do that, and so they they are able to cynically enjoy like um, exploit a ton of nationalism in the same way in that. Um, um, the the Soviet Union basically rediscovers Alexander Nevsky and Sur, uh, Surovov and all of those like imperialist generals. Uh, suddenly like these people are seen as heroes of the Russian people uh, because Stalin finds that uh, um, useful during a time of mass mobilization and 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 even like the the enemies of the Bolsheviks are able to... Uh, rally under the banner, essentially, to to fight back the Germans. Well, the Iranians do the same thing, because it's similarly a civilization state, as the nomenclature goes. So the Iran-Iraq war very quickly turns into an absolute nightmare quagmire for Saddam Hussein, and that's when they were at their weakest. One might argue, though,
2: Malcolm, that, you know, even today's reduced capacity U.S. military is stronger than uh, early
0: 1980s uh, Iraqi military. Oh, yes, definitely. Sure. But are they stronger in the Middle East than Iraq in you know, the 1980s? Do they have more tanks in the Middle East? And the answer to that, because it's a very basic empirical question, is no. And
2: I mean, couldn't they base them in NATO ally Turkey in big ally, um, you know, big regional ally Saudi Arabia in Bahrain? Could they not base them even in the Caucasus? Could some
0: Caucasian, you know, Caucasus countries not be strong armed? I think the Caucasus, the the problem is just, okay, by what means are you going to get them into Georgia or whatever? And And, you know that's awfully close to russia it's it's very unlikely that the russians will sit idly by while their strategic ally <laughs> is being invaded from a country which the russians claim as being part of their own um you know backyard essentially uh, that's that would be an even like putting nato troops in in the caucasus would be an even bigger red line like an invasion on would be an even bigger red line than Ukraine NATO membership, actually. Like, for, for very obvious reasons. Um, that's like, you know, having the Chinese state station a massive invasion army uh, on the border with Texas. So, okay,
2: I mean, so the general feeling is that Iran is too big, the topography is too unsuitable, the logistics change would be too long. The U.S. military simply doesn't have the scale or manpower to invade Iran. I mean, I saw a range of estimates in, uh, for how many soldiers, how many infantrymen, uh, how many you know people in an army it would require to invade Iran, and I saw estimates the the kind of the lower end of the range for estimates was one point six million, which is way bigger than the entire current U.S. Army and Marine Corps combined. Um, and, you know, that Army mean Marine Corps has, you know, garage mechanics and, and, and you know, lawyers and, and, and
0: accountants and all the rest of it, uh, you know. I need to add one more thing, though, here, uh, which is that um, the U.S. today has much less in, in, the, in terms of sea uh, lift, which is essentially like the ability to transport uh, material, uh, fuel, uh, tanks, ammunition, and so on, over the sea. Um, Like, a lot of the stuff they used for for 2003 was things they had since the first Gulf War. And so those ships, a lot of them have been scrapped due to old age, and they haven't been replaced. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that's not true. And let's also, for the sake of argument, say that, like, the only thing you need to invade Iran is the same sort of force that you invaded Iraq with. Which again, uh, the listeners should know, the US couldn't actually put up as a similar sized force today because like the military is smaller and weaker today. But let's say that's not true. There's a, a very simple reason why you couldn't do it right now, which is that in order to invade Iraq with the US being at two thousand three levels of capacity, you needed essentially a year of uh, slowly piling up ammo, fuel, tanks, spare parts, soldiers in neighboring countries. And so again, even if we say this is, you can do this with a force, like an Iraqi-sized force, uh, Joe Biden, if he gives the order for the Pentagon to... Um, Use the nowadays non-existent sea lift to to do the same thing. It's gonna take like longer than the election, so it, this is not something you start with like eight months before an election. Because what if Trump comes in and says, "Yeah, you know, good job piling up all this ammo, but I've changed my mind. I don't think invading Iran is a good idea." Like this is something you do when you have time left in your uh, presidential term of office. Uh, because again, like just the preparations are going to take a year, and um, these preparations are going to be happening uh, within the fire envelope of Iranian theater ballistic missiles also.
1: Yeah, can we just be specific about that? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but when Saddam Hussein is watching the build-up pre-Iraq war, he can't do anything about it, right? I mean, he's just a sitting duck whereas Iran is sitting on one of the most sophisticated missile stockpiles in the world, like doing this buildup itself. Like if they can hit all these Iraqi bases, these bases in Iraq and everything like that, and that's with proxy forces, like there's absolutely no way they'd let this buildup occur, right?
0: Yeah, like the the, the country you would have to use, I think, for any sort of invasion, like the only country that could conceivably agree is Iraq, because Iraq isn't Necessarily a sovereign country right now But like if you're doing this build-up in Iraq You have Essentially a, a significant part of the Iraqi army like part of the Formal command structure of the army like the the popular mobilization forces the Hashd al-shabi These people are going to be attacking you inside of Iraq While you're you know, mustering forces. And that's not even mentioning the Iranians who are going to be attacking you. So, it's... Like, an, an invasion, it, it's just a fantasy. Like, Denmark might as well invade like, Brazil or something.
1: So, just before we move on from the from the invasion thing, here's here's a final question. I, I, I don't think you'd be expected to know the answer, but... But just from a conceptual point of view, um, this seems pretty clear to me. Um, It seemed pretty clear before we talked. It's even more clear now that we've trashed it out. Um, I don't expect people with DC brain, uh, who are distracted by every shiny, shiny metal object, uh, which is most people in politics in DC, to understand this stuff. Not most of them, anyway. The Pentagon clearly must understand some of this stuff. So do you think, or do you have any thoughts on, when... Joe Biden and his cabinet go to the Pentagon and they say we want options on the table and one of them should be a full-scale war with Iran including a potential ground invasion. Do you think the Pentagon just turn around and say non-starter or do you think they have some like cope map where they like pretend that they're going to be able to
0: do this and like sell it to politicians? I think the Pentagon's position on that is, you know, that sounds like a great idea, Joe Biden. Uh as part of our plan to invade Iran, we only need a tiny little sort of uh, um, Help along the way from you guys. Just go to Congress tell them we're reinstituting the draft and we need like two million soldiers Once you give us or two million soldiers, we will be sending them all the way to Tehran, you know <laughs> But until then It's not gonna happen like that's that's what they're gonna say because again, This isn't this isn't really rocket science. You these people have like tables and formulas and so on for if you invade a country of so and so many square miles, you need X numbers of soldiers per square mile. They're just gonna put in the number of square miles in Iran on that table or that Excel sheet or whatever, and it's gonna like fart out, you know, 2.4 million soldiers. And they're gonna take that figure and say, well. Unless you give us these soldiers, we can't do it,
2: yeah, and by the way in in um to quote the uh, general from in the loop it's not just the two point four million soldiers or one point six million soldiers that you need to actually invade Iran. You need to have some soldiers left over at the end, or people tend to get the impression that you've lost right uh so it's not just the invade- the size of the invasion force one point six million it's also the I don't know the five hundred thousand or so, however many it is, they need to maintain their general defense posture.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like invading Iran, it's basically it's it's on the same scale as invading the Soviet Union. Sure, uh, the country isn't as big as Russia, which is the biggest country in the world, but it's not like the the Germans got all the way to Vladivostok or the Ural Mountains or whatever. Like they were bogged down. Uh, fairly quickly like they didn't even really get to moscow and so i don't really remember i don't have the figure exactly in my head for how many people uh inhabitants the soviet union had in 1941 but it was i don't think it was more than 90 million which is what iran has today so you're invading a country which is insanely nationalistic and which you know is not only nationalistic, but also uh, majority Shia Islam, which is a religion famous for sort of uh, uh, stressing the virtue of martyrdom, let's just say. Like, this is not a country that's going to have a hard time finding people to uh, basically fight the foreign invaders. Uh, And they've demonstrated this... um, They've demonstrated this in a, in a sort of almost like fantastical, like fantasy way in terms of like how how crazy the Iran-Iraq war was. So you're gonna need a lot and a lot of soldiers for this. So Malcolm, you are
2: uh Joseph Robinette Biden, and the Pentagon has said, no, sorry, we're not gonna invade Iran. There's no chance that we can do a land invasion or at least not until you have got a politically impossible uh, draft of two million soldiers uh, in place from Congress. So perhaps the U.S. president would ask for uh, a bombing campaign, missile strikes into Iran itself, i.e. not against Iranian proxies in the Middle East, but inside the territory of Iran. Now, a lot of people in the American media and the British media are talking about this, even encouraging this, even saying that it needs to be done because of what Iran is doing with its proxy forces around the Middle East. Uh, and in fact, a lot of, you know, fairly influential people and politicians are talking about such a bombing campaign. Now, even if a land invasion would, wouldn't work out, a bombing campaign
0: would do a lot of damage to Iran, wouldn't it, Malcolm? Well, The question is, and and this kind of gets at the heart of the big problem in the West right now, is that like nobody has. What
2: is the question? How does it get to the heart of the West right now? What is it that nobody has? If you're on the Patreon club, these answers should present themselves almost instantly. On the other side of the velvet rope, we have an hour more of Malcolm and the lads, discussing the future of the region, and the real alternatives to the present soup the West is drowning in. If you're not yet a patron, we'd like to thank you for listening, and let you know that we'll be back at the same time next week with another regular episode. Of course, you could always sign up – five dollars, pounds, or euros a month – cancel any time. Just search "multipolarity" on Patreon, and help us chart the fall of the old world order.